In this episode of the 21st Century Classroom, we kick off our fourth season with legendary librarian Jeannie Phillips. She'll be sitting down with a series of guests from around the Vermont education ecosphere and reviewing books. Not just any books, but books that can help educators as they make meaning from the wonderful, complicated, and challenging jobs they have of saving the world. First up, Jeannie talks with noted Vermont educator and consultant Bill Rich. Bill is a longtime classroom teacher who now works as a consultant with schools, providing guidance on brain-based learning. He's also the co-director of What's the Story Vermont and Learning Lab Vermont. Jeannie and Bill sat down to talk about Daniel Coyle's The Culture Code, The Secrets of Highly Successful Groups. Over to Jeannie and Bill. So last spring, I was at a workshop with you, uh, the third in a series, and you recommended this book, The Culture Code, and um, thought I would like it. And um, I ordered it right away because you give great book suggestions. And um, almost gobbled it whole. I read it almost um, in a day because it was that um, engrossing. And the book starts uh, with this question. Why do certain groups add up to be greater than the sum of their parts, while others add up to be less? And that's the focus of the group. Could you give us, in a nutshell, um, sort of the arc of the book and what it tries to do? Sure, and I'll begin by saying part of the transition from being a classroom teacher to working into somebody who's a coach within schools is you begin to notice over time, wow, every school is the same, but every school is very different. What's going on here? They look the same, you know, maybe some differences, uh, but what really it comes down to is every school has its culture. And so for me, this book is so compelling, one, because it's written by a writer who does a great job making it readable and equipped and research-based. And the other is that it's such a helpful way to diagnose and figure out what to do with the fact that since cultures are different, if you're not working within the culture or working to have the culture embrace an idea, it's going to be rejected. And so, so much depends on how the culture works and acts. And so over time, I've realized I need to have that on the front end of the work before we get to whatever the initiative or the work happens to be. Uh, that's really interesting to me because this book is not about education. It's not focused on education. In fact, um, it explores research and anecdotes from all sorts of fields. And then um, each section also ends with some ideas for action. But I found it completely relevant to everything I do as an educator, both in schools, in classrooms with students, but also uh, with teacher teams, with administrators, with um, groups of collaborators. And so we're going to explore how this non-education book has implications um, for our work in education. The book is divided into three parts. Um, the first uh, skill, as he calls it, is build safety. The second skill is share vulnerability. And the third skill that he mentions is establish purpose. I think these all three have um, huge implications for our work in education. And let's just start with um, building safety. Uh, Bill, could you give us an overview of uh, what Daniel Coyle means when he says build safety? Sure. And as I do that, I'll say all three of these are working at once. He divides them up in this order, build safety, share vulnerability, and establish purpose. But part of building safety is having a clear purpose. So they're all entwined at once, even though he lines them up. 
Uh, but to begin, to begin with safety, what I love about what Daniel Coyle does is he begins and talks about the brain and the amygdala and how the social-emotional part of our brain, which is older and more powerful than that little cognitive part we like to hang on to, but that's the part that's driving the bus. And so at your peril, you stay out of touch and in sync with where people are socially and emotionally. And you really need to start from that place. And the mantra that comes up in this book for people when a team is really working, we are close, we are safe, we share a future. And that idea of being close and safe has to do with belonging. And the idea we share a future is we're doing something important all of us, and we're all part of that, every one of us. And um, so that's how I see the three connect. I, I think one of the things Daniel Quill does so well is sharing anecdotes about individuals and people who do a great job with that. Uh, I think one in particular is the coach, Greg Popovich. And when they follow him around, they learn, first of all, he does not use email or text. And he gets those printed out, his email for him. All of his communication is face-to-face -face and in person. And one of his mantras is, hug him and hold him. And the thing about Greg Popovich that people don't realize is you'll see him at times and he's screaming at players. He is in their face. He's being very frank with them. But what people don't understand is he has cultivated a relationship with them over time so that they expect that he demands a lot of them, but it comes from a place of warmth, connection, and he would say love. So this idea of building belonging for some people, it can feel like, oh, here's that thing we're doing, kumbayaish, how is, but really, there are a lot of ways to do it, but if people aren't experiencing belonging, you're not going to have them being willing to be vulnerable to do what real deep work requires. And so, I think that's just a fundamental piece that he does a great job describing in the book. I love how you pull out um, that research about the brain. Um, I feel like uh, Daniel Coyle says really clearly in this section that we need to send a message to groups that we're working with that one, they are, that the individuals are a part of the group, that two, the group is special, it has high standards, and three, that um, you as a leader or as a teacher believe that each of the individuals can reach those standards and that that sends this implicit message, this is a safe place to give effort. Mm -hmm. For me, that felt like really relevant to what we do in classrooms mm -hmm. with students. Mm -hmm. um, and the kind of uh, space we need to create for student brains so they feel like they can um, take risks mm -hmm. and, um, and engage fully. Um, can you think of some examples of what that might look like in the classroom? Yeah, let's start with the classroom. School has just begun and everybody's so excited at the beginning of the year. And when students' brains are arriving, no matter what they're exhibiting, what their brains are really trying to figure out is, do I belong here? Is this a safe place? Is there purpose for me? And one of the things I loved about being a teacher is it is remarkable how many students show up ready to rethink that problem. Like, maybe this is the year. Like, this, this, maybe it's going to happen somewhere, someplace, that I'm going to have this. Uh, so, belonging cues, the challenge of it is it's not just telling people they belong. They need to experience it everywhere. It's from the way a secretary speaks to them. It's the way adults talk in front of the students. It's the way the room is organized. It's who has voice in the room. Is it equitable? Is it just the teacher? And we need to be really deliberate in thinking about 
what are the belonging cues we're sending so that students are willing to be drawn out. So if you see education as a place where compliance is supposed to happen and where people are supposed to learn what to do, well, you don't, that's a different set. There aren't really, there's not much belonging in that setting. But if you're looking for draw people out, for them to discover who they are, and for them to do some of the best work they've ever done and become someone better than they even imagined they could be, well, you're going to need belonging cues and you're going to need the kind of culture where people feel safe and inspired to do that. And that's not with a pep talk, right? It's not with a little PowerPoint with great quotations and pictures. It's not with a little funny video. It is those things and <laughs> thousands of other pieces. And as the book says, and it's true in the classroom, culture isn't what people are. Culture is what people do. Yeah, there's some great, I think that's all fabulous, and I think there's some great action steps at the end of the book that get at just that, like how do you transform your culture to one of belonging? And one that I loved was about expressing gratitude. Um, Coyle says we should say thank you over and over again, more than we think is necessary, but that we shouldn't just thank people for the things that seem positive. We should also thank the messenger who brings us bad news or tough feedback. And so sometimes it's that kid who shows that they're bored mm -hmm. and we should thank them. You're right. I have been talking too long. It's time to turn it over to you or um, thank them for drawing our attention to what needs to change to make the, the classroom more engaging. Mm -hmm. He also uh, suggests that we listen with our whole body, which can be really hard for teachers to sort of be really present to our students, but that communicates belonging. Um, and that we should share our own weaknesses and failures. Often principals want to know how do we create a failure-friendly classroom, a classroom where students can take risks mm -hmm. and be willing to make mistakes. And I think as teachers, we really own that and our own ability to do that in front of our class. That thank you note is such an important strategy, and uh, one of the things I'm involved in is co-directing What's the Story with Tim O'Leary from Liberty College, and in that course uh, for students engaged in social action and making films, one of the things we do on our overnight retreats is we bring hundreds of thank you cards, and students write thank you cards, and quickly we learn a couple things. Some of them have not done that before, <laughs> and they're not even quite sure how to do it. No, let's. Let's start doing it, and uh, yeah, very important. So let's think about the implications for teaching teams or faculties or um, groups of administrators when we think about, at that level, are there different implications for building belonging in order to build safety? I think a real, two real things that come from the book that affirm my beliefs. One is that this idea that clarity creates confidence and the idea that clarity dissolves resistance, and that most leaders underestimate by a factor of 10 how often, how regularly they need to repeat in myriad ways, this is why we're doing this, this is what we're doing. I think the other piece, and this is a more challenging piece than even being clear, is that the leader should lead with vulnerability. And this is a real challenging piece, and Daniel Coyle does a great job showing why it's so important. But he makes clear, especially for leaders, and I see classroom teachers as leaders too, of their own students, but the idea is you need to know your fallibility and you need to make it public and known. Right. That's, you know, how to do that uh, can be very challenging for people, but that's the kind of vulnerability that precedes trust. Yeah. You know, that, that, that kind of leadership has people leaning in. 
because everybody's a bit broken, right? Everybody's got their things they're strong with. Everybody's, and we need to do this together. And plus, everybody knows the leader's weakness. <laughs> Why don't they just go ahead and share it in ways that are not apologetic, not like this is part what I do well, this is what I need help with. Here's a story that kind of shows a mistake I made, but it's that kind of leadership. And it's the same in the classroom, too. If I'm up there, here's how to write an essay, and I know how to do it really well, but if I tell some anecdotes, oh my God, look, what, look at this thing I tried to write the other day. What, I love what you're saying, because what you're telling me is that leaders, administrators, but also teacher leaders can model exactly what we want also to happen in the classroom by modeling, um, sharing their own weaknesses and failures early and often. Um, I also remember uh, the coach you mentioned earlier, Greg Popovich. Uh, he and uh, the founder of McDonald's were both known as people who picked up trash. And I think that has huge implications um, for faculties and for teacher teams when um, a, a leader is willing to do the dirty work, uh, whether it's providing a snack or cleaning up after, picking up um, trash off the floor, uh, taking notes, that those send signals that this is valuable work and I'm willing to do it too, and that also builds belonging. Yeah, that be the change piece and that symbolic leadership. Not strategically poising, but just this is, this is how I am. Right. Which speaks to what I expect. Another action that Coyle suggests that I think is easier to do in the classroom with students than with adults, adults are often resistant, is this idea of having fun together, that laughter builds belonging, not in a shallow way, but in really a deeper way than all our talking can do, and that having a little fun together goes a long way towards building a culture uh, where everybody feels like they belong. And they build on each other's ideas instead of jockeying. That's right. I feel like we could talk a lot more about building belonging. Are there any last words before we move on to vulnerability? Just that building belonging is an endless act. Yeah, over and over and over again. It's not a one and done. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So the second section of the book is um, about uh, sharing vulnerability. And early in the chapter, or in the section, um, Coyle talks a little bit about this vulnerability loop. He says, um, A, person A sends a signal of vulnerability. Person B detects that signal and responds by signaling their own vulnerability. And um, that when A detects, person A detects that signal of vulnerability, uh, they build closeness and trust. And he says it's counterintuitive. We think you build trust so you can share vulnerability, but actually the opposite is, opposite is true, that you share vulnerability in order to build trust. Mm -hmm. And I, I would love your thoughts on that and the implications for, for mm -hmm. classrooms first. Mm -hmm. You described it so well, and that word that gets used in the book is there's a synchronization then that happens, starting to get more in sync. And again, not just on the cognitive, what we're thinking level, part of our brains are connecting in ways that, we're, that trust is not just conscious, but it's a real feeling in our body. It's a comfort. It does a lot more than just us saying cognitively, I'm starting to trust this person. Um, the other piece to that that I think is so important is vulnerability precedes trust. Great insight, but vulnerability precedes mistrust. And so the piece with that is our schools are vulnerable places for teachers, for students. And so the question becomes when those vulnerable moments happen, are they being greeted in a way and welcomed in a way that is uh, open to that? Unfortunately, what can happen is vulnerability creates mistrust. 
because people's vulnerabilities, especially in schools that are moving so quickly, they get masked over. And then people start playing certain roles <laughs> because they're very vulnerable. And so it's not gonna happen overnight where people all of a sudden hear, hey, we're gonna work on culture and we're gonna circle up in our PLCs. And there's a lot of habits and patterns that have been built up over years. And it's going to take some changing in terms of how people do things. And it's not gonna happen somehow without that trust. And again, how does that happen unless the leader is modeling it? Mm -hmm. How can there be a chance for it to happen? Because we're not lacking in vulnerability. What we're lacking in is how are we really communicating with each other about that? Are we over time creating spaces where people can slow down and recognize this is one of those times and spaces? Are we safe? Yeah. Are we belonging? Do we know our purpose? Unless that's revisited over and over time, and then as each time that happens, if the answer over time doesn't start to become, hey, actually, I'm starting to get what we're trying to do. <laughs> and actually, you know, the other day I started to find the feeling a little bit. I was feeling pretty good. I showed somebody something, and it's those little victories, that attention to detail. But again, unless the leader is modeling it, sharing how that's happening, uh, absent the demand for results on test scores, right? Those things will take care of themselves if people feel safe, they belong, and everybody's on board with the purpose. I love, um, I love that. I love uh, this idea that the leader sets the tone. Mm. And I think Coyle points out some really um, practical steps you can take and uses some metaphors in those two that I really enjoyed. Like he talked about listening like a trampoline. Mm -hmm. He said, um, first off, a trampoline is supportive, right? Mm -hmm. So you take a supportive stance. Um, uh, that, and that you're helpful when you're doing that work. That you ask occasional questions, not so many questions, you ask occasional questions that might gently challenge somebody's assumptions. Mm -hmm. So a trampoline isn't just entirely passive, it gives you a little bounce, and so he's asking you to really think about how might you gently ask somebody to think critically about what they're saying. And then finally, after much listening, you can make a suggestion that might open alternative paths. You're not giving them an answer, but that you're saying, have you tried? Might you think about? And that it draws out vulnerability and allows people to feel like they can tell you what's going on with them, like they can uh, struggle with a problem with you. Um, instead of offering quick, knee-jerk solutions uh, and ideas, you listen deeply. Mm. It's an underrated skill, listening, isn't it? There's a character, there's so many great characters in the book, right? You just read it quickly, it's as you said at the beginning, and one is Ed Catmull, who was head of Pixar, and what he, he talks about is the mistake that leaders make is they're so enamored with the outcome they're trying to get to, or efficiency-based graduation requirements, we've got to get this, PLPs, and these are crucial, and by the way, they're beautiful, they're elegant, we're lucky to be in Vermont, but it's it's whatever the focus of the work is, is where their attention lies. And what they can miss is that, remember, if you give a good idea to a mediocre team, they're gonna screw it up. If you give a good idea to a good team, they're gonna make it better. So if we can let go of some of the energy on the work of the day and the press of the goals and what we're required to do, which are realities and done well, they could really be helpful to our learners and I think our teaching lives could be better but it's about working on the teamwork. And what teachers know, and they express this in a variety of ways, we've changed the focus and done a lot of things over the years without ever quite ever feeling like we really, really did that well. <laughs> and so 
the danger of that is people develop a learned helplessness because the locus of control has been lost. Right? We're, we're being asked to do all these things, we do this, we have to do this, we have to do this. And rather than the emphasis being on how do we focus on making our team work better and having those teams figure out how they're really going to make these things happen with the help of leaders. But the idea is that somehow we should focus more on the teamwork and these these the very important work we're doing is going to go a lot better. Um, but it's about getting the teamwork right and helping them know when they're working well and when they're not, rather than reclarifying for the 20th time, just here's exactly what everybody should be doing. <laughs> that reminds me of another anecdote from the book about um, the military and action after action reviews and this idea that after an action of some sort, you sit down and you really look at it critically and debrief uh, what did we intend to happen? What actually happened? What went well? And what might we do differently? Mm -hmm. It reminds me of the debrief in a protocol session. But so often in schools, it's like, it's like we're on the front lines and we're so busy doing that we don't make time to reflect. And, you know, we know, as John Dewey said, we don't learn from experience. We learn from ex uh, reflecting on experience. That um, that's a way of sharing vulnerability is looking back and saying, how did that exhibition night we had go? What did we intend to happen? What actually happened? What went really well that we might try to do again? And what might we do to make it better? Mm -hmm. Whether it's an exhibition night or an art night or student-led conferences, mm -hmm. that we mm -hmm. take the time to do the reflecting we need to do to make um, the learning and the exhibition of learning even better. Daniel Coyle looks at different organizations and he looks at strategies they use. and across these organizations, all of them have a formal review process. These parent conferences we're gonna have, we've been working on this for months, here it comes, we do it. If there really could be this kind of an after action review, wow, could things get better fast, but often people don't feel safe enough. What the military will do is before any kind of action, they have a red team and the red team comes up and says, here's everything that will probably go wrong. Or here are things that are gonna go wrong that you're not even, because that group thing will start happening. Oh, we're gonna do this, that's a great idea, we're gonna do this. Yeah, we're educators, we love each other, here we go. How do we critically support each other so that we're all getting better at what we're doing? Because it's all of us, right? We have a shared purpose that is rooted in the relationship of belonging. Some people want to shortcut it. Like, they just want to go to the frank feedback. You know, I just want to tell people what I really think. Or these leaders should toughen up. We should be able to, well, it's rooted in relationships. It's not rooted in being rude. Yeah, you make me think of two things. And one is that um, it can be really uncomfortable because it feels inefficient. But over the long run, we'll get better faster from doing all this reflection and sharing a vulnerability. Mm -hmm. um, so it makes me think about, um, how uncomfortable that can be in schools because we want we have so much to do we feel like we always need to be efficient and the other thing it makes me think of is that um, so much of the time whether it's administrators to teachers or teachers to students um, our job is about giving feedback administrators give teachers feedback teachers give students feedback and in order to share vulnerability we can't just be giving feedback, we have to ask for it. Um, Christy Nold is one of probably many teachers who have this practice of regularly soliciting feedback on her instruction from her students and then showing them that feedback 
as a, somebody who leads PD, I'm always asking my teachers to give me feedback on what worked well for them, what didn't, so that I can fine tune my delivery. And I know you do that as well. And it feels really important. I'm not just giving you feedback. I'm asking you for feedback as well. There's a give take to that. If you show me a school in Vermont right now where the leadership had the capacity and the wherewithal to approach proficiency-based learning with the approach, we will only do this for students once we're doing it for teachers. So work with teachers. Here are the five fundamental skills we're going to need to get better at in order to really do proficiency-based learning in a way that is personalized. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to do a personalized learning plan for each of you. And we're going to figure out through some assessments where are all of you. And then we're going to have some together workshops if some of you need some flexible pathways, a little slower. In other words, if teachers really experience that happening for them, they'd be like, yeah, this is the way this should be. I see more and more schools catching up to that because the hypocrisy is becoming a little glaring. You know, here we are, we're talking about all these proficiencies, and yet we put you in this room for 45 minutes. Here are things we need to have. But by the way, less is more. Don't go too quickly. Don't cover things. And take care of those kids. See you in two weeks. You know, it's maddening, really. Just like we want to give our students feedback for improvement that's really specific and actionable and timely, we as, as educators need feedback that isn't judgmental, that's not brutal honesty, but that is about um, here are very specific things you might consider to improve your practice. And that there's a continuity to that. If we're receiving that feedback as educators, it empowers us also to give that kind of really um, actionable feedback to our students as well. In, in an environment where you belong and feel safe and have a future with people, you want feedback. You don't want to let the team down. Excellent. Let's move on sure. to our third but completely interrelated section of the book. <laughs> um, I love how you keep weaving them together and I've been thinking I'm doing the part to whole and you're doing the whole to part thinking. Um, the third section of the book is about establishing a purpose mm. um, and, and being really clear about uh, what the priorities of the group or team are, um, naming them, ranking them, and I think Kent, uh, Coyle says, be 10 times clearer than you think you should be. I'd love your thoughts on establishing purpose. Sure, and I'm going to connect to another book by Daniel Coyle, mm -hmm. uh, but he wrote another book called Talent Code. It's all about very similar, but why does talent really blossom in certain times? What are the conditions that really accelerate and deepen learning? And what part of that research he bumps into has to do with some research that was done at Stanford, this experiment called the Tappers and Listeners. A group of 100 people, they put them in two rooms. One half gets a list of 40 of the most popular songs in the United States, and Happy Birthday to You, Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, and their job is to practice tapping the melody. And in the other room, People get told, you're listeners, and we're going to pair you up, and the tapper is going to tap that melody out, and then you're going to guess the song. Tappers thought they were getting their message across one in two times. They were only getting it across one in 40 times. And this is because of this thing called the expert blind spot, or the curse of knowledge. The, the more expertise you have, the better you understand something, the harder it is for you to imagine the beginner's mind. And so when I read this book, the whole idea of establishing purpose is, if you don't establish it and it's done, it's like belonging cues. It never ends. And whether it's through imagery, through anecdotes, through catchphrases, through examples, through modeling it, through picking up trash, you know, how is it that we act here? And in every way send those signals so that nobody misses it because we want this to be cognitive muscle memory. We care about each other.
That's, that's a big thing at the school. That's part of how we act and how we do. And that's true in some schools. Some schools, mm, we take care of ourselves. So. I, I think about how often um, both my experience being in a specific school for a long period of time and then also traveling around to schools now um, as a professional development coordinator, I hear teachers say over and over again, we have so many initiatives. We have, we're trying to do so many different things. And um, Daniel Coyle suggested, suggests using catchphrases as clear reminders of where we're headed. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I built one. For me, I've been thinking about how um, one of my catchphrases might be, student engagement yields student achievement. Mm -hmm. That engagement is central to mm -hmm. good learning. And mm -hmm. um, that just helps me be really clear about mm -hmm. my mission in mm -hmm. schools. And so I'm wondering, you gave one example, at this school we care about each other. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I'm wondering if you can think of any other examples of, uh, of catchphrases that schools mm -hmm. use to say what they're about, to say what their purpose is. The first one that comes to mind is at CBU, I believe this happened under the leadership of Val Gardner, take care of yourself, take care of each other, take care of this place. What's so great about that is you can't think of a thing that could go wrong that wouldn't have to do with one of those not really being attended to. If you have to overthink it, you're, you, don't, you shouldn't be thinking this, you should be acting it and feeling it. It's muscle memory. It's the way we do things around here. Um, you know, are we teaching so that people can name the topic and say what it's about? Or are we teaching so people connect and synthesize and make deep meaning? And when humans are in spaces where they're making connections and learning to synthesize, and people are recognizing, oh, you're having a transfer problem, totally expected. We've asked you to do six different things <laughs> this year. It, it, it makes sense that some of them you're dropping the ball on, and you've got little lists about how to do each one. It's like when we student teach, like our plans are three pages long. Transfer is you no longer spend so much energy on it because it's become automatized. Right now, we're far from automatized with the number and range of things we're being asked to do. But I'm beginning to see in schools that have cultures that have really put teachers in a space where their locus and control hasn't been robbed from them. I'm really beginning people to say, hey, this is all starting to come together a little bit. This is much better than grading. Like, this is actually helpful information. And that system I used to hate because it's starting to happen. And But part of what teachers and all learners need is what Greg Popovich and others do so well that really expanding out here's the big picture remember and then zooming right in here's the next step here's where you go so it's that back and forth of kind of telescoping microscoping help remind people of the big idea in every way every day and also make sure that there's timely feedback for people and how are they getting feedback oh this is the way we do things around here there are two things there that really ring true for me, and one is that if I'm, as an educator, I'm not clear on the purpose, students certainly aren't going to be. So mm -hmm. I need to have a crystal clear purpose and communicate that well. And then the other thing you said, there's something about heuristics that reminds me of Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Mm -hmm. And if we can create those heuristics mm -hmm. uh, with our students or with our faculty, if this, then why? The, the last thing I will say is that there's also a way in which we can share models of things that meet purpose or models of excellence by sharing our work through blog posts. A lot of schools are doing that really well. Sam mm -hmm. Nelson at mm -hmm. Shelburne Community mm -hmm. School does that really mm -hmm. well. Um, 
sharing de uh, student work, both mm -hmm. in our buildings and beyond, mm -hmm. using social media, and sharing teacher work in this open source way so we can show, mm -hmm. here's the student work that emerges, mm -hmm. and here's the teacher work that goes mm -hmm. with that, that open source quality that I see in a lot of Vermont uh, educators is really valuable because it helps us uh, communicate purpose. One of my favorite lines in the book comes from a CEO and what he says is, the more complex the problem, the more help you need to solve it. And I don't think there's something more complex than how to educate the public. That is a bold, ambitious, ambitious effort that throughout the history of humankind, not everybody's bought into, and still today, not everybody buys into. Unfortunately, some people in public schools don't even buy into it. But yet we're all in our own classrooms privately trying to figure this out on our own rather than somehow working as teams. It's, it's kind of wild to me that that's the case. I can't imagine trying to do this work. And I've been very blessed and fortunate in my life. I've always been team taught. Just was the culture of where I was, schools. There was always trans people were always sharing work. It, I was lucky, that was modeled for me. So when I see some of the sterile environments people are in and they're pulling their hair out trying to do it alone, this, this, is, this is way too far, way too hard to do alone, what we're being asked, especially here in Vermont. This is that village moment. Like we, we, we need to rethink about how we're working together as adults. And there's a chance this would be better for us too. Like because if meaning making was better for our students, we'd be feeling more successful. We'd be feeling like, hey, you know what? I feel safe. I, I feel like I belong here. You know, we've got a purpose. We can do this together. I think that's really interesting. It connects with other research about, um, about people's happiness in their work, that we are all more fulfilled in our work lives if we have a clear purpose and we feel like it's meaningful. Mm -hmm. And it makes me think about um, how, wouldn't it be beautiful if every school in Vermont, the purpose so it was so clear, you could ask anybody in town, hey, what do they do over at that school over there? And a community member could mm. state it, a first grader could say it, could state the purpose. Every teacher, every paraprofessional, mm -hmm. every support staff member in that building could say what the purpose is from the top down to the ground. Like everybody knew. I think that would be a really wonderful thing. And if people had that muscle memory, it wouldn't inoculate those school systems from hard times. This is difficult work. There's no utopia out there where, well, if we all just did this, wow, our job, we'd have our feet up and just watch the students learn. No, this is messy, hard work, but with purpose, we have resiliency. Yeah. It's okay. It's okay. The copier didn't work this and that, like this, somebody didn't do this. It's okay. This, this is my purpose. I, I, can, I can kind of push through for this. One of the things I found most moving in the book is this idea that this is so relationship-bound. And uh, when people hear that sometimes, they think, oh, here it comes in this intimacy. Yeah, it does have to do with intimacy and openness. And, but through many of the examples, and if it's okay, I just want to read one excerpt here. And I just want to read this piece, and this is about uh, Greg Popovich. And he identified these three types of feedback. One is personal close-up connection. Like you're right next to somebody, and for Greg Popovich, that's where it's one. It's not an email. It's not a text. It's not, not that those things can't be part of it, but it's contact. And by the way, contact, he touches the shoulder, he comes in close, and I know some people don't like, but he's, he's, you're, he's looking you in the eyes. That's happening regularly with all of his players. The other is performance feedback. So not just how you doing, checking in, but then specific. And then the other is the big picture perspective. And just bear me, can I read one paragraph? Please do. 
Popovich toggles among the three signals to connect his team the way a skilled director uses a camera. First, he zooms in close, creating an individualized connection. Then he operates in the middle distance, showing players the truth about their performance. Then he pans out to show the larger context in which their interaction is taking place. Alone, each of these signals would have a limited effect, but together they create a steady stream of magical feedback. Every dinner, every elbow touch, every impromptu seminar on politics and history adds up to build a relational narrative. You are part of this group. This group is special. I believe you can reach high standards. In other words, Popovich's yelling works in part because it is not just yelling, it is delivered along with a suite of other cues that affirm and strengthen the fabric of the relationships. Do you have other thoughts about the whole arc of this book uh, and um, where it's relevant for teachers, students, classrooms, schools? I have so many other thoughts that I dare if I went into one of them we wouldn't ever get to the end. Um, there's so many great pieces here. My favorite, the favorite part of the book, I'm not a big epilogue fan, like, okay, what's an epilogue? Is this worth reading or not? It's so brilliant because Daniel Coyle describes being invited to coach a writing team for one of his children. So all of a sudden he's going to be coach of a team and it's while he's writing this book. And I'm not going to say too much more about it, but it is a wonderful synthesis at the end that shows it takes vulnerability to act differently, but it's worth the risk. Thank you, Bill, so much for taking the time to talk about this book. I think we both give it a thumbs up and highly recommend uh, if you're interested in learning more about uh, culture, school culture, and beyond, uh, you pick up a copy of The Culture Code by Daniel Coyle. Thanks so much for this conversation. I really enjoyed it. You're welcome, and thank you to all of your colleagues who do so many great things around Vermont. You've been listening to The 21st Century Classroom, podcast of the Tarrant Institute for Innovative Education at the University of Vermont. You can find out more about the Tarrant Institute at blog.tarrantinstitute.org. A huge thank you to Bill Rich and Jeannie Phillips. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and the Google Play Store or over on the blog. Music for this episode was by Argo Fox and is used with permission.